Amen. Thank you, Brigham. Thank you, worship team. Uh, It's wonderful to hear the church family singing and reminding one another of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, here we are in our 13th message in the book of James, our series entitled Faith in Act. We talked about John Bunyan on Wednesday night. The 17th century, the, 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 the Puritans, they had such, such a, a finger on the pulse of the human heart about the way people felt, the struggles that people have in their walk with the Lord. And uh, what they would say about prayer, the Puritans would say that you should pray until you pray. Think about that for a minute. You know, think about your own prayer life for a minute. How is your prayer life, first of all? You know, I think when I ask that of anybody, in general, what I hear is, ah, it's not what it could be. Oh, I wish it was better, right? So to pray until you pray, to take the time before the Lord, on your knees or otherwise, until you realize, okay, I've gotten through this list, I've got ahead through that, whatever it is I always pray about, and now I'm pouring my heart out before the Lord, telling him my concerns, thanking him for the victories, and just spending time before the Lord. It's a conversation that we would pray until we pray. You know, there are barriers that I just want to talk about real quick before we jump into our text to prayer. A lot of people say, I just don't have the time right? Just consider that. I don't want to shoot that down. I just have to say that and you all go, I say that, but it's really not true, right? We have time for a lot of things in this life, but to spend real time with the Lord, for some reason, gets kicked down the road from the moment that we wake up. A lot of us, and I'll cover this a little more deeply later in the message, but a lot of us, I believe, just, we're not really convinced anything's going to happen, We would affirm, we would maybe quote some scriptures about the fact that it will, but in our actual prayer time, in the time that we spend before the Lord, we're not really sure what to expect to come of this, so maybe we won't even bother, right? And finally, this is one that's kind of hit me over the last month or so, is concentration, right? I think as we talk about prayer, how many of us would affirm, you don't have to raise your hand, because it's probably most of us, when you're praying, your mind can tend to wander, right? So here I am praying, and all of a sudden I'm thinking about this other thing. And that has been a discouragement to me for so many years. And it kind of hit me all of a sudden. Maybe that's what I should be praying about. I'm going down my list. Bless my wife, bless my kids, bless my dog, bless the bird, thank you for my house, all these things. All of a sudden I'm thinking about the busyness of my day that's to come. Instead of lamenting over the fact that I just can't concentrate on prayer, maybe I should pray about that. Maybe it's the Lord bringing to mind, these are the things that you need to be praying about, right? Oh man, there was this thing that happened, there was a disagreement that happened yesterday with this person. Pray about that. If that's what's on your heart, bring it to the Lord. That's what prayer is, that we would pray until we pray. A couple of examples from scripture that kind of give us what prayer should look like, and so often it's so different than what we expect it to be. You know, you will see something, someone maybe up here, and the prayer sounds so eloquent, and you think to yourself, I can't pray like that. I don't know those words. I can't piece it together in that way. But as we look to Scripture, look at some of the prayers. I just wanted to talk about real quick. In Matthew 14, so Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He goes off to pray. And he sends the disciples, says, go in a boat, go back over the sea, meet you, meet you over on the other side. That night, the wind is contrary, and they're all scared. They look out, and they see Jesus walking on the water, right? Peter says, hey, I want to come out and be with you. He says, come on. 
Come on and be with me. He gets out. It's going fine until he takes his eyes off of Jesus. Whole another sermon. Takes his eyes off of Jesus and he prays, O great God of heaven and earth, Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I beseech thee that you would... No. Blah, 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 blah. And then he drowns. He says, Lord save me. That's all. That's a prayer. That's a real prayer, right? That is answered right away. Also, we see on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ is hanging between two criminals in Luke 23. One of them is berating him. The other one says to the other one, he says, what are you doing? We belong here. He looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Those words change his eternity, Honestly, the belief that was given to him by the Holy Spirit before he uttered those words. But what a prayer, because Jesus answers him right away and says, you will be with me for eternity. So we have our text in a nutshell today before we read our text is this. Prayer is a gift from the Lord. James calls us to pray in every circumstance of life. The concepts of sin and sickness are complex, and the two are, and I put often, I want to take out the word often, and the two are connected, just not in the way you may think. From Old Testament prophets to you and I, all believers can pray with expectancy when our desires are aligned with the will of the Lord. So you guys, let's look at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. And let me read our text for us this morning. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So we have three points and a side quest today. All right, our first point this morning is this. Pray, praise, pray, and serve. Point number two, I'll get back to the side quest in a moment, is sin and sickness. And point number three is you, me, and our friend Elijah. But this side quest is there for a reason. It's kind of a quirky title, but before we get to verses 15 and following, there are some basic foundational truths, some discipleship truths about the nature of God and about the nature of sin in this world and about the nature of prayer that I think we need to cover so we can interpret these verses well, right? Rule number one, the rule of faith is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Wherever Scripture interprets scripture, it's right, opinion gone, right? So we want to make sure that we handle the word well. So we will, after the first point, go on a bit of a side quest, but it's super important. So let's jump in first to pray, praise, pray, and serve. The text says this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This section begins with three questions, and they're all worded in the same way. Is anyone among you? These three things, suffering, cheerful, sick. 
I think this probably covers everyone. Everyone in this room probably can identify at least partially with one of those things, if not multiple of the three, right? Is anyone suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone sick? It covers everyone, and sometimes we find ourselves as a mix, but it's always one of these three. The answer for any one of the people among us in any of those categories is to turn your eyes to the Lord and to his people, to pray, to be thankful, to bring in the leaders to pray as well. So let's just march through the verses together. Verse 13 says, first, is anyone among you suffering? You know, patience and suffering has been a main, like a major theme all the way through the book of James. We have people who have been separated from believers in Jerusalem where he is a pastor, right? And so he's writing to them saying, in all the things you're going through, be patient, trust in the Lord, wait a little longer. He is returning. This is what we're waiting for. And so he says, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. And we suffer in a lot of ways. Just think for a moment how you have suffered in your life, how you have heard of friends or some article that you read last week that just broke your heart, right? Sickness, maybe some guilt, maybe being treated badly in the past or in the present. It could be poverty. It could be a broken relationship, right? There is suffering that happens because of the brokenness of this world in so many ways. And you can just probably go on for days just listing the ways in the human condition we can suffer. But the call to action for the sufferer is what? It's to pray. The simplicity of his call is really clear. And it doesn't say pray and at this point. It just says pray right? I will say this, and I'll say this a couple of times as we go through these first couple of verses, the things that we're going through in life will, in general, lead to some practical next steps that we have to take, actionable steps in our life. But first it says pray. Why? Because one of the reasons why is when you pray, those things will come to you. You will understand, okay, what is, this is what I need to do. But the knee-jerk reaction can't be, I need to fix my problem. It is that I need to run to the Lord. It's dealing with, it may say you need to deal with this illness by headed to a doctor, right? It may be that you need to confess sin. It may be that you need to confront those who have hurt you in a loving way. It may be that you're speaking into a, a relationship for reconciliation. It may be that you are seeking help for a financial problem that is putting you in a place of suffering right now. But notice all these things are implied as potential steps after prayer. So our knee-jerk, our plan A must always be to pray. When something starts to go downhill, the first thing your heart should do is to run to the Lord. Even with a short prayer, Lord, save me, right? That is a fully appropriate, Lord, help me. There are some things I know I'm going to have to do now, but would you please carry me through it, that I would honor you in this situation, that my life would be a life of worship. And on the other side of this, I would say I trusted you, and then I've watched how you come through. How do you generally meet a time of difficulty in your life? Don't our minds start to race with how to fix it, right? When something happens in our lives, we say, okay, this is how I'm going to fix it. And maybe by the end of the day, we'll say, well, I'm glad that turned out okay. Thanks, Lord. But our heart should be focused and tuned to him primarily. The second half of verse 13 says, are you cheerful, right? It says, um, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So praise the Lord. Sing songs of praise to him. How many psalms do we have that remind us to do just this? And I think that this is where many of us can forget God altogether. When things are great. I'm fine right now. 
I don't really need to pray. And you know, I've worked really hard for this situation. Looks like my wisdom is paying off. This is a time that we can a lot of times forget the Lord. We find ourselves happy in a moment or season. And since we're fine, it doesn't even cross our mind to pray right now. I'm good. You know, I'll let you know if anything goes bad again. I'll come back. I'll pray again. And if it gets fixed, great. Right? So praise the Lord in every area of life. Think about this for a moment. Stuff that may have happened this week. The family is laughing about something. Everyone's happy for, for a moment. And you think to yourself, you take a step back and you say, this is just beautiful. I don't deserve it. It's like a picture of heaven. Take a moment and praise the Lord. In your own heart, and even say, you know what, guys? I think it's right that we realize right now, we recognize this is a blessing, and let's praise the Lord for it, right? You had a productive day at work, and you just feel really accomplished, and you get home, praise the Lord. That's wonderful, Lord. Thank you so much for that. What a great feeling. Hard conversation that you were worried about all week, it goes really well, praise the Lord. Dad brought home pizza, praise the Lord. Maybe you have a moment of peace in the midst of a trial, Praise the Lord. Just consider this to yourself. What if we praised as often as we complained? Think about that for just a moment. We can be so naturally bent to look for the negative and to look for things to complain about and to point out. What if we praised the Lord as much as we complained about the stuff in our lives? When we realize, James said back in chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17, he says, Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know, human nature is such that we can, tame, we can tend to blame everyone, including the Lord, when things go badly. But when things go well, we can sit back and say, Look what I did. My giftedness, my wisdom, and being disciplined has done these great things. Things. And I want to say that so this first verse, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs of praise. It's not two sides of the same coin. This concept is one side of the coin. The other side is self-sufficiency. The other side is self-centeredness and an illusion of control. Whatever is going on in your life, can you see what James is doing? He's saying whatever is happening in your life, look to the Lord. Thank him, pray to him, ask him, praise him. But whatever is happening in your life, you must run to him. Suffering and cheerfulness, prayer and praise, they all go together. They're part of the Christian life. So in all things, we run to Jesus. Consider this. And I'll say this in counseling to a lot of people when there are negative emotions involved, where it's depression, anxiety, fear, temptation. All of these things are a call to worship. They're a reminder to you that you're a finite being and you need the Lord. You cannot handle this on your own on a daily basis, just like hunger reminds you that you need food. When you feel down, when you feel scared, when you feel tempted, this is a call. This is the Lord saying, turn your mind back to me. But you understand that the good times are that as well? When you take a self-assessment and go, this is awesome. Wow, that's a call to worship as well. And it settles your heart and puts your mind where it should be back on Christ. It's a constant reminder that he is, you know, before all things. So let's continue on. Verse 14, it says, is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this is referring to sickness physically and spiritually. Now, when I say that, just know when I get to the side quest in a minute, it's going to cover kind of this concept of the connectedness between our sickness and between the spiritual difficulties that we face. And I'm going to try to handle that as carefully as I possibly can because it's really easy to mishear what, and, and to hear what's not being said in, in, a, in an area like that. But when you have a problem, here is the assumption. From verse 13, you're already praying. And you are already praising the Lord in the midst of that difficulty. You're thanking him. But it says now, level two, is you call for the elders of the church. You call for others. You take the initiative for others to come and to help you as well. So one, this is not, I have a problem, someone come fix it. This is, I'm praying. I'm handing this over to the Lord. I'm seeking to trust him in it. And this is so much for me. I need help. Right? So first and foremost, this is not just passive where you say, I'm having a bad time, someone come fix this for me. And it also says you call for the elders. So you don't sit around and sulk and say, everyone knows I'm sick. How come no one's come to see me yet? James says, because you haven't asked anybody. Call somebody and stop feeling bad for yourself. So call the elders of the church that they would come and they would pray Let the elders pray. And so let me say this to you real quick. So as elders of the church, it's not as if we have some special connection to the Lord that everyone else doesn't have. No one is saying that, right? Each believer prays and has prayers heard because we're justified by the blood of Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's not your pastor. It's not your elder. It's not your deacon. It's not anybody else. It's Jesus Christ himself. However... The Bible calls us to a specific task in ministry, to serve him in a particular way. So it says call call the elders of the church. And I think you can extend this as well to call brothers and sisters in Christ as well, to say, I need your help. Come see me. Elders are given these specific tasks in ministry to pray, to teach the word, to live by example, to display love and patience, to shepherd the people of the church. James says call them, and they will pray, and the elders will anoint with oil. Now, that right there is a very interesting concept as you study what it means to anoint with oil. A lot of times in modern day, you'll see a drop of oil put on the head. Someone's I'm going to take this literally. I'll put a drop of oil on the head, and now I'm going to pray. Back when this was written, the anointing with oil was much more. There was some medicinal property. There was some actual medical outcome that was hoped for with this. There was literally massaging the person with a fragrant oil, an oil that might help them to feel better. The practice of anointing the sick at this time was not a ritualistic drop on the forehead, right? So spiced and aromatic oils were, were used to massage a person. And so it means you're supposed to help. Right? Go and pray for the person, but also provide for some needs for this person to feel better. Maybe this is why so many churches have a doTERRA salesperson, right? But it was, it was praying and physically caring. Now, disclaimer, if you call me or one of the elders, don't expect me to get out some oil and rub your neck if you have a migraine. Not going to happen. But what you can expect is that someone pray for you and also maybe give you a ride to the doctor or make sure that they set you up with someone who will. Maybe pick up your medications for you. That's a, a request that we've received before. Absolutely. Bring you lunch because you can't get out of the house because you don't feel good. Maybe make you some tea while we're in the house. Yes. To provide for your physical needs. Call for some help. And people should help, right? So this first point was pray and praise and pray and serve. Now, 
I'm going to take you guys on a little side quest, an important side quest. Two things that you need to know is that this world is broken and punishment is not equal to discipline. So let me just cover these for you as we continue on. Before we get any further, let's clarify something. Sin leads to brokenness, right? God's creation is perfect. Genesis 3 happens. We're barely a couple pages in and all of a sudden sin enters the world and things aren't perfect anymore, Now, hear me carefully, and please don't fill in the gaps of what you think I'm about to say. Death, depression, poverty, sickness, tears, disappointment, sadness. These entered the world when sin entered the world. And in saying that, I can say on biblical authority that all sickness is a result of sin. Okay. Before you get all angry and walk out and and mean tweet about this, I'm not saying that when you get sick it's because you did a sin. That's not what I'm saying, necessarily. But I am saying that anytime someone's sick, it's because there's brokenness in this world. Right? But the presence of sickness in this world is the result of presence of sin in this world. How do I know this? Say, how do you know this? I'm glad you asked. There's no sickness in the Garden of Eden. There's no tears. There's no death until sin happens, right? First couple pages of the Bible. Last couple pages of the Bible, there's no, or last page, there's no sickness or tears or death in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because these are places we read of in Scripture where there is no sin. So none of these things happen, right? In hell, it's an eternity of tears and death. Why? Because sin, unfettered sin, just as the residents always wanted, is there. There's tears, there's suffering, there's sickness, and there's death, eternal death because of sin. So the other half of this is that punishment and discipline are not the same thing. So we are never called to punish our children, but to discipline them in Scripture. The difference is pretty important. Punishment is to make someone pay for what they have done. You did this and I want you to feel it, right? I want you to pay for this and you're going to know just how bad you hurt me and how badly you you acted. Discipline is to employ something in a person's life to teach and to train them to shape a person that they would grow. Punishment comes from anger. Discipline comes from love. Punishment wants the person to hurt, to be put in their place. And discipline wants to see the person restored and thriving in life. You actually want to see someone doing well when discipline is employed. If you are in Christ, hear this before we get to verse 15. You will never be punished by God. Jesus Christ took your punishment on the cross. If you're in Christ this morning, you will never have to say, maybe I'm being punished. Answer is no. Jesus Christ took your punishment on the cross. God will never punish you. But the writers of Hebrews says that discipline, however, is a confirmation that we are his. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11 says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, right? The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I think many of us can affirm there have been times that the Lord has gotten our attention, and afterwards, having come through a trial, having come through pain, having come through a difficulty, we will say, wow, He taught me so much through this. That's discipline. That's not punishment. And if you don't receive the instruction, it's another way to say it, of the Lord, the writer of Hebrews is saying you're not even one of his kids. Because when you have a kid, you love them enough to teach them. You love them enough to take them through the events in life. Remember, the whole purpose of your life is not comfort here and now. It's that you become more like Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of your life. So this is an important side quest we had to take in order that the next few verses would be clear. And I want to say two more things as we jump in. I want to give two scriptural quick examples about sin and sickness. 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper. Paul says, make sure you don't take the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. He says, because you have done this, some of you have become sick. Some of you have died. So there are times where we are walking in disobedience before the Lord that, that there are times he will get our attention. However, look at John 9. So there's a man who was born blind. Jesus heals him and his disciples say, so who sinned that this guy was born blind? Was it his parents or was it him? And Jesus says, nobody. Nobody sinned. You know what happened? This was, he was born blind so that the glory of the Father could be manifested in him. So we can't make blanket statements about this causes this. What we must do is to realize we serve a big God whose will is perfect. His way is perfect. His plan is perfect. His decree is perfect. That's the point. That's what we have to learn from these next verses. So here we go. Sin and sickness is our second point. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So listen closely, suffering in our lives is complex. And we rarely find ourselves suffering merely physically or merely spiritually. We're a dichotomy. The scripture teaches that we're a body and we are a soul. And we can't compartmentalize those two two things. We're a whole person, a complete person made of these things. So James says, pray and praise and call for the elders of the church to pray and, and care. And the result will be the saving of the one who is sick. And this is where people can start getting pretty confused. It can become pretty confusing text here. So what, saving from sickness? Sometimes. Sometimes you will be healed. 
Sometimes you will be better. Sometimes you'll meet someone who says, someone prayed for me and I got better right away. Sometimes it's a week. And it's so funny how we are so slow to give the credit to the Lord. Well, you know, I was sick for another couple days when I got better. And then we just credit that too. That's just natural processes, right? The, the bug went away. They felt better. No, the Lord said, yes, the person got better. We're not entitled to that. If our body is sick, wellness is not something we can just say, that's mine because everyone else gets better from this 24-hour bug. No, when he says yes, he says yes. So yes, sometimes when it says we'll save the person from their sickness, yes. Sometimes that prayer that's being prayed for them will save them from despair, and discouragement from what they're going through and the pain that they're feeling. Very often that's the case. Sometimes it's to strengthen that person to simply make it another day of faithfully following Jesus. So this is not a promise that all who pray or are prayed for will be physically healed. And so there's, there's false teaching that I think is dangerous for people that you will hear coming out of various, various pulpits. It will say that God's will is always to physically heal a person if that person has enough faith. Listen to me closely, church. If that resonates with you at all, please know that is a lie directly from the pit of hell. It's false teaching, and it hurts people. When some interpret this say, to say, if you have enough prayer, whatever you pray, if you have enough faith, whatever you pray for will happen, will result in healing, what does that do for the faithful saint who prayed and cared for their spouse or their child or their friend and they still went home to be to the Lord? What would you say to them? If only you had had more faith. That's disgusting. So what? If they are healed, what are you going to do? Say, praise you. You had enough faith and the person was healed. For goodness sake. When someone is healed, praise the Lord. When someone is healed eternally, at the end of their life, this is a promise. So now we can say, foundationally, that for a believer, everyone will be healed. Whether that's physically now, or whether that person that you loved and cared for and watched deteriorate over the number of years and it broke your heart, and finally one day, we do affirm that that person, when they left this earth, they woke up in the presence of Jesus completely healed. So we can say yes to that. So when we say God's will is to heal, yes. For those that follow him, he will heal sometimes on this planet and sometimes every time in the life of a believer, eternally. And we have faith there. A tumor disappears from a scan, right? One scan it's there, one scan it's gone. We've heard these stories and they're true. Sometimes a person is not healed physically here on this earth. And many, many times this is the case, Right? but they are healed in a far greater way than simply feeling better. They're healed perfectly. So verse 15 says, the prayer of faith will save, the Lord will raise them up, and sins will be forgiven. So you have to remember, to go and to minister to somebody, this is comprehensive ministry. Someone may be physically healed during this time. Someone may get saved. Someone may repent of sin and be forgiven of their sins because you have gone to minister to this person. And this will happen in different combinations, right? So this is not, it's almost like Proverbs. And remember we've said from the beginning that James really parallels Proverbs 1 through 9, and Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving us this, these are principles, but this is not a direct promise. You go and pray, this person gets healed. There's all kinds of wonderful things happening in the, in the room when you go and pray for a person with expectancy. Maybe someone is encouraged in Christ. Maybe someone gets saved. Maybe someone repents and comes back to the Lord after a season of not following him. And maybe some, someone says, oh my goodness, 
I do feel better. But these are all possible results, and they're all only to be attributed to the grace of the Lord. We pray for each other, verse 16, and confess our sins to one another. And this tells us that we should be open and honest with one another in the body of Christ. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Within the body of Christ, we shoot ourselves in the foot if we hide everything within our own hearts. We must help one, each, one another. You must be open and honest with one another. If you're struggling with a sin, the last thing you should do is to try to keep that secret and fix it on your own. One of the ways that God will help you is through the body of Christ. Other people to hold you accountable. Other people to help. And that doesn't mean you have to be graphic in every thought you have or everything you've ever done. But it should be that you are open to pick up the phone, shoot a text that says, I am struggling. Pray for me. Please help me in this. Do you have a book I can read? Do you have something? Could you just come and sit with me for a while? Because this is something that is hard for me, right? So confess your sins to one another, not because one another can forgive you, but because it's part of being a believer. And it leads us to confession before the Lord as well. Second half of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And this is a big point. It says the prayer of a righteous person. That doesn't mean if you had a really good day. First and foremost, righteousness comes from being in Christ, from being born again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the the fervent prayer, right, the expectant prayer of someone who loves Jesus Christ, there is power there. It matters. It doesn't change God, but it changes things. Prayer absolutely changes things, right? We can affirm as well that when we're living a life of worship before the Lord, however, prayer does become easier, doesn't it? When you feel like you're walking with the Lord, when you feel like, man, I just love the word. I've been hanging out with people who love him too. They're encouraging me. They're calling me to account. They're calling me to repentance. Whatever that is, you're like, you know, I'm close to the Lord right now. Prayer does come easier, doesn't it? It's not like you have to push through all of this mess and all this stuff that's going in your head, right? It matters and it's powerful and it works. And I believe that many of us can fall into seasons or lives of weak prayer or even prayerlessness because we really don't think anything will happen anyway. And so to truly pray, we do so with expectancy. When we shoot up a defeated prayer with an eye roll, like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to pray about this, but what's really going to happen? Or when we go complain about the same problem to a whole other person and tell our long story that we just enjoy hearing ourselves say, and we look for easy fixes, and the person says, have you prayed? And you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I tried that. What are we implying when we say that? My problem's bigger than God's power? I tried that. I prayed already. No, I want you to fix this tangibly in in the normal. I want you to do this for me. No, no, no. Have you prayed today? Have you prayed this moment? Have you gone before the Lord in this? It's man-centered and it's presumptuous. It's faithless to think that we're just going to fix these things and the problems in our life on our own. We must trust his will for our lives is better than our own. Prayer has great power when exercised with faith in the Lord and trust in his will. And real quickly, a few points from my third point before we close for the day. The last point is this. You, me, and our friend Elijah. Verses 17 and 18 say this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And there is such encouragement here, and there are big takeaways for us to consider. First of all, 
God is the common denominator whenever a miracle happens. Elijah's prayers were effective because he was lined up with the will of God. I want you to remember something. When he gives this example, unless you actually go back to 1 Kings 17, you can make some big assumptions. Like Elijah saw something happen inside. You know what's going to fix this? If it doesn't rain, I'm going to pray that it doesn't rain. And God said, yes, Elijah, that's a great idea. This was not Elijah's idea. We don't really have time to go there, but a couple of verses from 1 Kings 17, that section is actually called in my ESV, Elijah predicts a drought. Now, remember, the rule of faith is that Scripture interprets Scripture. The same Holy Spirit who wrote 1 Kings 17 wrote James 5, or actually inspired both of these passages through their human writers, right? And so we know it's never going to contradict itself, and James tells us, as he interprets 1 Kings, that Elijah prayed. It doesn't tell us specifically Elijah's prayer here, but it does say that Ahab is ruling in Israel terribly. He's married Jezebel, who is worshiping this weather false god, Baal. 450 prophets are serving at this time, and, and Elijah realizes that this is a problem. And he goes and he warns and says, listen, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. It's implied by James at some point in here that Elijah prays. But this is God's idea. Elijah is is in line with God's will, and that's why this happens, right? To pray in the name of the Lord is to pray accordance and in full subjection to his will. Not just to say, I pray in Jesus' name that I can get a bigger house. I pray in Jesus' name that this person would like me. Whatever it is, just slap Jesus' name on there and act like that's going to give you some kind of power to make life happen the way you want it to. Absolutely not. That's not how the the kingdom of God works. We must find ourselves in subjection to the Lord himself. We want our desires to conform to his desires. And so it also says in verse 18, he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. That prayer is only implied. I just want to read this to you before we go. All right, so the prayer referred to in verse 18 is actually referring to Elijah's prayer to God to consume the offering when he was dealing with the prophets of Baal and Ahab, watching, as written this way. It says, at the time of the offering of the oblation. So remember, so he's, try, he's, he's trying to show Ahab, listen, you line up all your prophets, you put a bull on the altar, you give me an altar, you put a bull on there as well, and whoever calls to their God and fire consumes the altar, that's God, right? So just context for you there. And here we go. So the prophets spend all day doing all kinds of things, trying to get their false God to ignite this altar on fire. And of course, as expected, nothing happens, right? So here we are in verse 36 of 1 Kings 18. He says, At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know you, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. The goal of the prayer of Elijah is that people would know God. And this realization, so the fire comes, it just obliterates that. And all all the water they had poured around gets licked up, it says, by the flames. People see this and they freak out. They realize that it's God. Lesson learned. The next thing we see is that Elijah says, hey, go tell Ahab to watch for the clouds and prepare for rain. That's the prayer mentioned in, in James 5.18. He prayed again, and the, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The point of prayer being answered is always that it would glorify God. And it's in the will of God. It points to him. It gives him glory. 
So prayer works every single time, but exactly the way God intends it to. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I just want to make this final point before we go. Outside of Christ, this is not your story. There's no great power in your prayers if you don't know Jesus Christ, but you can. I want this to be true for you. You see, Jesus Christ entered a world that is broken. Every single one of us was born with a sinful nature and rightfully deserves eternity in a very real place called hell as punishment. And there is nothing we can do to fix it. But Jesus Christ came and he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. He died the death on the cross that you and I rightfully and justly deserve to die. Three days later, he rose again, conquering sin and death in the grave. He says, come to me. Repent of your sin. Follow me. I'll give you a new heart. Turn it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And that's the call this morning. If you'd like to talk with someone this morning, if you'd like to write where you are, just talk to the Lord and ask him to save you, that you believe what I just told you. And begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the prayer. And so let me pray for us, and I'm going to ask for Brigham to come back up and to close us with one more chorus. Lord God, thank you for your word. It's perfect. It's everything that we need. Thank you for the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we read, as we desire to learn, and as we desire to grow. Lord, you are good, and you are great, and you are holy, and you are worthy, and you are unchanging. Teach us to pray, to pray until we truly pray, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in, in, even in our fellowship as we walk out of this room today. I pray that those that are wrestling with their relationship with you, that we'd see someone saved even this morning. Lord, I pray that that would be just a, such a joy to them as they grow and they learn about what it means to follow Jesus. Bless this the dear church family throughout the course of this week as they consider what was taught this morning. Uh, be glorified in it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.